Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Welcome Shows podcast of with of George Galloway. Airwaves, the College of Knowledge, where there are absolutely no tuition fees and you're positively encouraged to speak back to the teacher. That'll be me. Well, they're off and running in the mother of all British general elections. All bets are off, given the failure of Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson to negotiate a non-aggression pact. Anything can happen. We'll be talking to the king of British cephalogists, Professor Sir John Curtis, about the runners and riders and the early form in the first furlong of what is going to be a long race. And on the day that the Labour leadership accuses the Tory leadership of effectively maybe being secret Russian agents, We'll be talking to one of the authors of a brand new spellbinding book about the comrades in arms, Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin. And we'll be looking at the disaster that Libya has become. So fasten up your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy ride because this is Rock and Roll Radio with pictures. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. The mother of all talk shows. The only education you can get for free. George Galloway. This is Radio Sputnik. This is London, but coming to you, of course, all over the world. Thanks to the wonders of the internet on sputniknews.com. You can listen to us all over the world. You can, of course, also watch us. And that's the difference in this rock and roll radio show. The mother of all general elections in Britain has begun. It looked as if it was going to be a procession. There would be some kind of non-aggression pact between the Brexit party, led by Nigel Farage, without whom there would have been no Brexit, no referendum, and British politics would be a very different, more somnolent place over the last few years. It looked even possible that they might reach an electoral pact with the Brexit party standing against Labour mainly in the Midlands and the North and in South Wales with the Conservatives concentrating on the wealthier parts of Britain, which is, of course, the parts they know best. Uh, but that has all fallen through. Moreover, Jeremy Corbyn has been out the traps 
like a thoroughbred racehorse. And that should come as no surprise because that's what he did in 2017. They have always, as George W. Bush might put it, misunderestimated Mr. Corbyn, at least as a campaigner. There's no doubt that of all the political leaders in this election, he's the one that can make the ground shake when he visits the towns, cities and villages across this country. And he's already been in the best part of a dozen places speaking to enthusiastic crowds already. Boris Johnson's only been out once, and that was to a hospital. Who advised him to do that? I'd like to know. And of course, he was predictably booed and rubbished by the people in the hospital, anxiously waiting for hours to see an A and E nurse or doctor, people who were visiting people in inadequate hospital conditions, doctors and nurses themselves who've had their issues with the Conservative government over these last nine years. And that is, in a way, the Tories' biggest problem. They've been in for nine years, and things certainly aren't good in Britain. So far as our economy is concerned, our society is concerned, levels of crime on our streets are concerned, none of these are success stories for the Conservatives. Now, Boris Johnson is a new leader, and he would have hoped might yet be able to convince people that, well, all that went before was the fault of David Cameron, George Osborne, Theresa May, Philip Hammond, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, as was, and all the others, that this is a new Tory party, a new Tory party leader. And he may, of course, succeed in doing that. There's a long way to go. But there's no doubt also that the new circumstances with the Liberal Democrat vote plummeting in the opinion polls, that the pro-EU camp, in which, unfortunately, I must include Labour, despite the labyrinthine nuance of their position, and that's putting it very kindly, uh, if that camp unites behind Labour and the Brexit camp is divided, then Boris Johnson may very well be in for a shock. And Jeremy Corbyn's policy programme is much more attractive to people in working-class areas, middle-class areas, than the Conservatives' programme is likely to be. In short, in my view, if Boris Johnson can keep the prevailing narrative to Brexit, where he has at least tried to deliver the result of the Brexit referendum of 2016, then Boris Johnson will be the next Prime Minister. If, on the other hand, Jeremy Corbyn succeeds in changing the election narrative to the bread and butter economic and social policies where he is on his strongest ground, then it is indeed possible that Jeremy Corbyn could emerge, probably not as the leader of a majority Labour government, maybe not even as the leader at all, but that Labour could emerge as part of an anti-Brexit hung parliament. I make that immediate penultimate uh, uh, caveat, if you like, because I'm here to tell you 
exactly as I predicted a hundred times on the mother of all shows, uh, mother of all talk shows. You can look it up, you can consult the record. A hundred times I told you this. No one will be deselected. Not one Labour MP will be deselected. I said, I was going out on a limb because there were some people, Wes Streeting, Dame Hodge, uh, Jess Phillips, and so on, that you would have thought would surely be deselected. But I went out on that limb. And guess what, folks? I've been proven 100% right. Not a single Labour MP has been deselected, except Chris Williamson, who's actually the most pro-Corbyn, pro-Labour, uh, most socialist uh, MP in the House of Commons, the only man to stand up for Julian Assange, the only man to stand up for uh, Venezuela and so on. Well, he's suspended and we'll know on Wednesday if he's going to be ruled out as a parliamentary candidate. But not one person has been deselected, which means if Labour returns all of its current MPs, then it's exactly the same parliamentary Labour Party that has spent the last four years and more trying to destroy Jeremy Corbyn. So it may very well be that Corbyn could emerge as the largest party in the general election and then promptly be deposed by one way or another. We'll be running a poll tonight. Uh, I think it's already up. I hope it is. Who do you think will win the British general election? Boris Johnson, Jeremy Corbyn, or do you think it will be a hung parliament? So get voting now on that, please. Now, we're talking about many other things also. We're talking on the day that the Labour leaders cast aspersions that the Conservative Party leaders were somehow agents of influence of Russia. Yes, you heard that correctly. Lady Nuggie, Emily Thornberry, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, alleged today that Dominic Cummings, the Chief of Staff of Boris Johnson, has questions to answer about the time he spent living and working in Russia. You couldn't actually make it up. It's kind of like an absolute vault fast a reversal of the kind of allegations that are traditionally made. Now, that made me think that this is a good time to talk about this book. It's an absolutely spellbinding read by uh, three very eminent authors, all of them academics, uh, one of them British, one of them Irish, I think, and the other Russian. And it's called Churchill and Stalin. Comrades in Arms during the Second World War. I found the book absolutely fascinating, and I'm looking forward to the discussion with the author. Because, of course, Britain has a long and tortured record in its relations with Russia. Mr. Churchill himself was the driving force behind a huge British military effort which actually invaded Russia after the Bolshevik Revolution, the anniversary of which is coming up uh, very soon. And the purpose of the British military intervention 
was to bring down the new Bolshevik government in Petrograd and Moscow. And it never really got much better in all the years ever since, except for those years when Churchill was ready, willing, able to join the wartime alliance, form the closest possible relationship with Stalin, present Stalin with King George's personal sword of Stalingrad to commemorate the most decisive battle in the Second World War. Things were going swimmingly. The Cold War needn't have happened. We'll be talking to these authors about all these issues. I don't know if they've got a view on whether Dominic Cummings is actually a comrade of mine after all, whether he's an NKVD officer. We'll find out maybe in the wash. Maybe Emily Thornberry has a scintilla of evidence behind the otherwise rather sinister aspersions which she cast on Cummings today. And we'll be talking about Libya. We'll be talking to a professor, a Canadian professor, Maximilian Forte, who has written a terrific book on the Sarkozy, Cameron and Clinton-Obama war on Libya, just because it went so catastrophically wrong. There was no reason to believe that it would go better than catastrophically wrong, but a remarkable number of people across the political spectrum seemed all too easily convincible that it would. It wouldn't be another Iraq, they said. There's no Al-Qaeda in Libya, they said. Gaddafi is talking through a hole in his hat when he says, if I fall, I'll be replaced by Al-Qaeda. Well, in a way, Gaddafi was wrong. He's been replaced not by Al-Qaeda alone, but by Al-Qaeda and ISIS and many other fronts of the alphabet soup of Islamist extremism. And Libya is no longer a country at all. It's no longer a state. It has three governments, three parliaments, four prime ministers. Don't ask me to explain the maths on that one. And they're all fighting each other still, like ferrets in a sack, murdering each other, massacring each other, stealing the oil of Libya and selling it for their own warlord purposes. It was arguably even more catastrophic, for Europe at least, than the equally ill-fated attack, assault and occupation that we participated in over Iraq. Because, of course, Libya is on the Mediterranean. And once we blew the doors off, well, you know what happened next. And you know that one of the consequences of what happened next, the mass outflow of people from Africa, people escaping in boats, many of which capsize, submerge, drown the occupants, has led to the kind of refugee flows which led to the catastrophe in Essex, uh, just a, a, a couple of weeks ago now, where dozens of people were found dead in a refrigerated lorry in 
uh, the south of England. And of course, we only take a tiny, tiny percentage of that refugee flow. The politics of Greece, of Italy, of Spain, of Portugal have all been seriously altered by that refugee flow, that mass movement of people across the Mediterranean. Who will win the British general election 2019? A, Boris Johnson, B, Jeremy Corbyn, three, uh, sorry, C, a hung parliament. I think uh, that probably covers it. Joe Swinson might say I'm being sexist, misogynistic, because I haven't included her, but frankly, I stand by my story. Now, on the line is the king of sophologists, Professor Sir John Curtis from the University of Strathclyde. Once upon a time, I represented that fine establishment in Parliament. Now, I could pay Sir John no higher compliment than cutting short my monologue in order to accommodate him, but I'm told he's not quite there yet. Let me uh, just, as it were, give an overview of the polls today. The Conservatives are either eight points clear of Labour, 11 points clear of Labour, 12 points clear of Labour, or 16 points clear of Labour in the poll in the Observer this morning. So whatever way you dice it, Boris Johnson is ahead, uh, but not necessarily as well ahead as he would have expected. And the Labour score would appear, at least in one of the polls, to have given the party a bounce. If it's 8% clear, that's definitely too close for comfort, especially if you factor in that Theresa May was 20 points clear of Jeremy Corbyn at the beginning of general election 2017. Corbyn has shown already that he can claw back leads. Now, whether the hydra-headed policy of Labour on Brexit with some candidates calling themselves the people's vote candidate, others openly saying that they will renegotiate with the European Union a new Brexit deal and then put it to the country in a referendum, but they will campaign against their own deal, or whether you're staying stum on that point like Corbyn himself is, then if that potential Achilles heel can somehow be shielded, guarded, kept away from the studs of the opposition, uh, I mean football studs, not the other kind of studs, we'll see. Let's talk to the man himself, Professor Sir John Curtis. John, uh, Professor, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Good evening, George. Let's start with the analysis you've already made. You may want to amend it, I don't know. Uh, that this parliament, the next parliament, will have more non-Labour and Conservative MPs than any parliament. In Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The last hundred years. Do you still believe that, John? Well, a hundred is slightly too long a period, but let's just focus on post-war British politics since 1945. Because if you go back a hundred years, you're still going back to the era when the Liberal Party was a serious competitor. OK. Yeah, I, 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 basically, the, the calculus is as follows, is that in Scotland, it looks as though the SNP would at least hang on to their share of the vote, maybe even go up a bit. But meanwhile, one of the things we have to remember is that, indeed, across the UK as a whole, both the Conservatives and the Labour Party are down on where they were in 2017. So even if the SNP simply stands still, given that pretty much every seat in Scotland is marginal, and certainly all, virtually all the seats that the SNP lost in 2017 are marginal, it seems very likely that the SNP are going to end up with more MPs, and maybe as many as 48 or 50 or so. Um, then the Liberal Democrats. Well, the Liberal Democrats, admittedly, are down a couple of points in the polls today, so you know, who knows, maybe they'll go down a bit further. But at the moment, at least 30 or so Liberal Democrat MPs seems a not unreasonable expectation. So that gets us to um, perhaps the 80 mark or so. 18 from Northern Ireland, guaranteed, because neither Conservative nor Labour fight there, which then add three or four from Plaid Cymru, Caroline Lucas from the Greens. And you know, it looks as though 100 third party MPs is perfectly possible, and we've not had that in the post war era. And the reason why this matters, or even any figure relatively close to it, is that the more third party MPs there are inside the House of Commons, other things being equal, the more difficult it is for either Conservative or Labour to win an overall majority. And you know, here we should remember the last three elections, two home parliaments one in which the uh, governing party only had a majority of 12 and decided that majority was inadequate within a couple of years. Uh, these were not accidents. And the fact that we are now at least have a high probability of there being more third party MPs just makes it even less likely that we will get anything. We don't necessarily get a hung parliament, but it's not terribly likely at the moment that we're going to get a landslide majority of the kind that we saw in 1983 or 1987. Now, today's polls, uh, Sir John, there's a big spread. I mean, Johnson's either 16 points ahead, which would yeah. point to a very big Conservative majority, notwithstanding what you've just said, or he's eight points uh, ahead. Uh, yeah. how, how do you account for that spread? And what do you think? What does your uh, peerless uh, instinct tell you? Well 
let's let, let's first of all cut through the confusion. Um, there are there have been seven polls published since the election was effectively called what well, basically on Thursday when the when the, the legislation went through. Um, uh, on average, and six of the companies that did those polls also polled in the fortnight or so uh, after the deal was negotiated between Boris Johnson and the EU uh, and before the election was called. So we can compare like with like here. Now, if we do that and take the average of the seven polls that have come out today and compare it with uh, the ones that were done just before the election, well, basically, the Conservatives are now running at 38, up two, Labour at 27, up two, Liberal Democrats 16, down two, Brexit Party 10, down two. So the key point to take away from the confusion is this. One is that the squeeze on the Brexit Party vote has moved further such that indeed now on average the Conservatives have about 59% of the Leave vote, which is pretty much in line with what uh, Theresa May achieved in 2017. The Conservatives, however, are still weaker amongst those who voted Remain than they were in 2017, and they're also not particularly popular amongst those who didn't vote in the EU referendum. Um, but basically, uh, the Conservative Party is squeezing the Brexit Party further amongst Leavers. But then the other thing that seems to happen in these polls, and it's consistent across the polls, is that for the first time since the back end of May, it looks as though the Labour Party may finally have edged up a bit, and they've done so at the expense of the Democrats. And if you look at what's happened amongst Remain voters, there's a three to four point swing amongst Remain voters. And that's clearly action to be watched. And of course, it's worth bearing in mind here, Boris Johnson, of course, can try to squeeze the Brexit Party vote as much as he can, but he have no control at all over what happens on the Remain side of the argument. And I don't think the Conservatives will welcome the fact that today the Labour Party are apparently making a bit of progress on the Democrats. Now, yes, there is a spread. The spread actually is not as serious in the polls as it was a few weeks ago when we were having some polls, two or three point Labour lead and others suggesting it was about 15 points. There is an argument going on in the polling industry in particular about uh, the accuracy with which people recall having voted Labour in 2017. And some of the pollsters such as YouGov, who asked people uh, on their panel of people they regularly interview um, just after the last election, um, uh, how they voted, a report that if you ask them more recently how they voted, there's a bit of a fall-off in the proportion of people who remember having voted Labour. In other words, some people who said they voted Labour two years ago have forgotten that they did so, perhaps because they're embarrassed about the fact or they've not, they're certainly not registered on their memory anymore. Um, whereas, and that therefore, polls which don't have that kind of information that only simply rely on people who um, tell you how they voted last time more recently, um, they're at a disadvantage perhaps in weighting their data accurately, or at least they are if they don't take into account the possibility of recall error. So that, that's the debate that's going on. But one has to say, George, although, yes, you know, the, the absolute numbers do vary a bit, the structure in these polls is very, very similar. They basically show the Conservative Party doing well amongst Leavers. They show the Remain vote split, but today's rather less split than it was. And it's those two facts that you need to understand to understand why um, Boris Johnson is ahead in the polls. Implicit in what you say uh, is this. 
if the election is fought on Brexit, you get one result. But if Jeremy Corbyn can somehow, and there are media outlets that would like to help him do that, change the subject and concentrate more on non-Brexit issues, uh, Labour has much more of a chance. Would you agree? Well, I think the assumption in your question, George, is the Labour Party has a Brexit policy which it struggles to attract voters on. And I would be inclined to agree with you on that. Certainly, the polling evidence suggests that, vote, that voters, when asked, you know, is the party's policy clear or confusing, whereas voters tend to be reasonably clear where the other three parties stand on Brexit, they do struggle with the Labour Party position. And indeed, if you then give voters a description of the three positions of Conservative, Labour and Democrats and ask them to choose which they most prefer, it's the Labour one that is least popular. So, yes, it may well indeed be the case that the Labour Party is going to make progress in this election. It's going to have to do so by trying to focus people's minds on its non-Brexit policies, where, you know, it does have at least some clear messages. It wants to nationalise a number of our central utilities. It's got ideas about... Uh, creating a, a fund for each privately quoted company whereby the employees uh, own some of the share capital and get some of the dividends uh, therefrom. Um, of course, it certainly wants high taxation. It's still in favour of scrapping university tuition fees in England. And today it's also come up with some fairly radical ideas for improving the insulation of everybody's home. And, and I wouldn't deny also that some of these policies are at least potentially popular. The difficulty here, of course, is this, twofold. One is the Conservative Party on the domestic agenda is fighting on a very different platform, certainly from 2015 and to some degree from 2017. We have only today had the Conservative Party saying that it is going to now uprate welfare benefits in line with inflation and going to increase pensions more. And more broadly, um, Boris Johnson seems to have found the magic money tree that Theresa May couldn't discover. And against that backdrop there, what the Party is now finding itself doing is saying, well, the Conservatives might want to spend, spend more than they've been doing, but we are willing to spend even more. In other words, it's a choice between two magic money trees. And that is obviously potentially rather more difficult to sell than a Conservative Party that's still emphasising fiscal rectitude, all of which seems to have gone out of the window, <laughs> and a Labour Party that says, no, austerity is wrong. And both sides now seem to agree that austerity is wrong. So that's one difficulty. The other potential difficulty, of course, is that, yes, the Labour Party might want to talk about things other than Brexit, but the Conservatives are happy to talk about Brexit, the Liberal Democrats are happy to talk about Brexit. They will want to pin the fact that the withdrawal treaty went through uh, on the second reading at Labour's door because it's 19 Labour MPs that voted for it and they want to get Remain voters to uh, not to back Labour on those grounds. And, of course, the Brexit party is more than happy to talk about Brexit. So, it, you know, Labour may succeed, but it perhaps may be more difficult for Labour to hold the agenda in the way that they did in 2017 when, frankly, one of the Conservative Party's problems, very simple. It wasn't just uh, everybody else that was surprised by Theresa May's decision to um, call a general election. So was the Conservative Party itself, and it frankly wasn't ready for the campaign. Now, uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, has shown, I think, in the first week that he hasn't lost his mojo. He's quite a no. formidable street campaigner. No. Um, now, it's also true, though, isn't it, that Boris Johnson is a far more, well, personable, charismatic uh, candidate than Theresa May was. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, do you think that Boris has made a good start? Seemed an odd thing to do to me to have his one and only outing so far to, of all places, a hospital. Well, that's because the Conservative Party is wanting to defend itself on the NHS. And given that the polling suggests that actually the Labour leader over the Conservatives on the NHS is perhaps not as large as it is on uh, some occasions, then I think, you know, frankly, the Conservative Party is wanting to defend itself on that position, much as David Cameron, indeed, was quite insistent on campaigning on the NHS um, a, a while back. But certainly, I mean, you know... But he got, he got the bird, John. I mean, he, was, he got booed, even if it yeah, was only true. by a few people. That, that became the story. Yeah, that always, that always becomes a risk. I mean, I remember Tony Blair being harangued outside yeah, exactly. Oswald in 2001. That almost seems to be par for the course if you uh, decide to step in, 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 onto a hospital concourse. Um, but, I mean, I think, you know, more broadly, I mean, you're right. I mean, back in 2017, basically, Jeremy Corbyn was the only effective campaigner. Theresa May struggled. Tim Farron was rather hapless, and Paul Nuttall, well, nobody knew who Paul Nuttall was. This time, Jeremy Corbyn not only faces the charisma of Boris Johnson, though I grant you it's sometimes a bit of an unguided missile, and his way with words can sometimes get him into trouble. Um, but also um, Nigel Farage, who's going to be uh, campaigning up and down, and who again is, again, one of the other most charismatic politicians um, in our politics. So against that backdrop, be aware that Jeremy Corbyn doesn't necessarily have the same relative advantage, but I grant you, does have the advantage. The one key attribute that he has as a leader is that he is an effective campaigner, he's a relaxed campaigner. I mean, in the 2017 election, as it were, the long election campaign went on, mm. the more one got the feeling from Jeremy Corbyn was, you know, I'm quite enjoying I'm this. I'm enjoying this, yeah. But, <laughs> um, and you know, doubtless against that experience, he he will start from that start from that backdrop. But I mean, I think, for example, in it, in it, he is going to have to be careful. I mean, for example, he's saying they want, he's wanting to move away from Brexit. Well, one of the reasons why Boris Johnson is where he is in the polls is that he's persuaded Leave voters that the reason why Brexit hasn't happened is because of Jeremy Corbyn. He's pinned that on Corbyn. He seems to have pinned it successfully, much the same way as the Conservatives successfully pinned on the Labour Party, arguably, but not arguably not very fairly, the fault for the financial crash of 2008. And Corbyn's failure to respond to that, I think, is dangerous because, you know, it's fairly obvious, and one might want to point out that actually... Boris Johnson voted twice against Theresa May's deal, and a central reason why the UK did not leave uh, the European Union on the March the 29th is because the Conservative Party, or sections of it, voted against. But the Labour Party, frankly, don't seem to be willing uh, and ready to respond on this. And I think, you know, it is somewhat dangerous because basically you do want to persuade voters that the fact that Boris Johnson failed to do, to uh, uh, leave on the uh, on the uh, on October the 31st is an indication that you can't necessarily promise uh, uh, believe his promises mm. it seems to me that's what ha has to be a central line of uh, labor party attack and that in 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 a sense I'm, i've got this sense that the labor party is at risk are still trying to fight the last campaign to say the Tories are a nasty party that uh, favour big business and are in favour of austerity, whereas I think maybe something more subtle is now required, like a party delivered by a prime minister who overpromises and who, when you look at some of the details of, of the Conservative public, pu public policy spending, it's perhaps public policy spending that is uh, might be thought to be more likely to favour 
those from more middle-class areas and uh, less socially deprived areas than had been the focus hitherto of uh, much public spending. But, you know, it requires the Labour Party to move on and be a bit more subtle. And I'm a little bit concerned that uh, the Labour Party has not grasped the need for that subtlety at this point. Do you think Nigel Farage has made the right decision not to stand himself? And how many do you think in the end they will end up standing in? Um, well, I think that's the first question. Yes, he probably is right. I mean, if he was going to fight, he'd probably have to fight Thanet South, as he did in 2015. He would certainly do well in that neck of the woods. But it does tie him to one corner of the country, and there's no guarantee that he would win. Whereas as a roving leader who is able to support his party up and down the country, and in particular can take the argument to the Conservative Party about the merits of Boris Johnson's deal. And, you know, the, you know whatever one thinks of the merits of um, Nigel Farage's case, I think he very clearly demonstrated on Friday that he can certainly argue a cogent case mm. against Boris Johnson's deal from the perspective of somebody who is an ardent lever, and he's probably going to find it easier to do that if he's able uh, to go around the country. How many are they going to fight? I suspect that they are going to fight. Uh, much of the country. They are reported to have a fair amount of money. Um, they're supposed to have 500 candidates selected. Uh, maybe in the end they won't decide to, f to stand against some of the ERGers, but to be honest, not many of the ERGers need, uh, need uh, Nigel Farage's help. And if, certainly if he, what he wants to do is to fight a nationwide campaign, uh, which is taking the argument of Boris Johnson, he needs to have candidates everywhere, not least because it will affect how the broadcasters treat the party uh, during the election campaign. Lastly, Sir John, and I'm grateful for your time as always, it's a December election, almost mid-December. Yeah. It'll be cold and dark and wet, uh, and yeah. we've never had one uh, since, I think, the first election that Labour... Uh, oh, I see, 18 something so we've never 1923 we last time and and labor won that uh, ramsay mcdonald won that uh, no, election. no 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 the conservatives won the election uh, 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 george but um, the liberal Demo the liberal party then put labor party in power because the um, uh, conservatives were a minority and they lost the queen's speech so it's almost unprecedented certainly in the lifetime of anyone listening to this mid december nearly polling yeah. What's that going to do to the turnout, in your well, view? But with winter elections, we have had two in the post-war period. One was in February 1974 on the 28th, in the wake of the three-day week and the coal miners' strike, and the electricity being turned off for hours on end. 79% turnout, up six points on the summer of 1970. And... The highest ever turnout in a UK election is uh, since the advent of the mass franchise, February 1950, 84%. Um, think about that like this, George. If we're all willing to go out in December to do Christmas shopping and to go to nativity plays and watch the Christmas light and go to Christmas fairs, we can probably make it to the polling station. Perfectly put, Professor Sir John Curtis, as always. You're a gentleman and definitely a scholar. Thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Now, uh, my poll's doing big numbers, 1,500 uh, votes so far. A, Boris Johnson, 38%. B, Jeremy Corbyn, 35%. C, hung parliament, 27%. Very, very interesting. A hung parliament is very likely, says OC24, because of all the outliers in play, Lib Dems, SNP, 
etc. But the only way we stand a hope in hell of ending this all amicably is with a second referendum, and even then possibly a third referendum. So I'm back in Corbyn because we need that choice. Hmm, another two referendums. That'll end all amicably, I assure you. And the invidious envy says, I had an odd dream. Will Labour get 323 seats and the Brexit party get 27 seats? Don't know what others got. And I know some of this might sound like the prediction of a madman, but I somehow have a weird gut feeling that the next government will be a Labour-Brexit-SNP coalition. And John says, if Corbyn wins the next general election, I'm moving to Venezuela. And Jane A says, I think with the general election, we'll just go round the mulberry bush time and time again until the people uh, snap. And Lee Cash says, a sad choice of candidates. I'm going Nigel would vote for you. Uh, I'm going Nigel would vote for you if I was in West Brom. Do you like the Boris Treaty? Well, not much. It's better than Theresa May's, but it wouldn't be the treaty I would have drawn up. And Kat says, I think Boris will win. We'll keep Corbyn and the Remainers out. And CEU later, what a very clever handle, says we need to elect as many Brexit party MPs as possible. And Jockey Bollingoli Trilson, what a great handle, says I'm for an independent Scotland and I'm for Scotland leaving the EU. Most indie campaigners don't see they lack principles, wanting to be in an ever increasingly bonded union with Europe, but resent their bonded union with England. Both are the same, surrendering sovereignty. And since 2010, says Corbyn and Johnson can't be trusted, but Corbyn is worse. His party is just weird. And the Red Resistance says, if I was PM, if I was Corbyn, I'd stop all this calling the PM Boris, which conjures up a cuddly image of him. I would take every opportunity to call him by his real name, which is Alexander Defefel Boris Johnson. Tells you all you need to know about him and his party. And Hassan Diwan says, would Jeremy Corbyn put party before personal ambition and return to the back benches. And LM says, I'm proud to say I abstained on the Brexit vote because I knew that I knew nothing and therefore couldn't make informed decisions. Wish the rest of the country had been honest enough to see that it was the same for them. I also was sure we'd survive either way and could negotiate some way back in. Let's take a, a call, shall we? We've got one from West Yorkshire, Noor. Very George, well. sorry. Thank you very much. I can, if I can refer to the programme last week, yeah. I was a little bit disappointed that you seem to be underestimating uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn. I'm a huge fan, and uh, I think he's, 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 he's a lovely man and a good man. I do not like Johnson. I think you're possibly a bit too pro him. And, and I'm going to be extreme here. I think the Tories, as they are in government, are a bunch of fascists. Johnson is not a lovable country, man. I detest him. Well, I don't look, want to sort of look, get uh, away from Brexit. What about all the positive things that Corbyn-led mm, Labour mm, is going to mm, do? Mm, mm. Well, first of all, so, uh, I've been accused of many things in my life, but being pro-Boris Johnson 
is not uh, one of them. Secondly, uh, it's entirely wrong uh, and very dangerous to call everybody to the right of you a fascist or a racist. That's very, very dangerous and actually helps to conjure forth that which you fear most. Because if you go around calling everyone who votes conservative or is a conservative a fascist, that's absurd. If, there, if they were fascists, there wouldn't be an election. If there were fascists, this radio show would be closed down already. I'd already be in a concentration camp. And with a name like Noor, you'd probably be in the next bunk uh, to me. You shouldn't toss around these kind of loose and foolish appellations to people which are simply unfounded. Now, as for underestimating Jeremy Corbyn, you obviously didn't listen to the first part of the show. We're far from underestimating him. I spoke with Professor Sir John Curtis about his campaigning skills and zeal and the fact that he's still got his mojo. And that is my takeaway from the first week of the campaign, that he's got his mojo. Boris Johnson hasn't yet apparently found his. Last word to you, Noor. OK, I, I, maybe that was exaggerating, but I've never known a government as, as viciously right-wing. Well, you to must be, be very young. You know, you must be very young. That I'm means... 74, George, well, well, I'm 74. In that, case, in that case, you're losing your memory. Because if you really think that this government, broken-backed, with no majority, is more vicious than Margaret Thatcher, who closed down industrial Britain, then you definitely have lost your memory or you're not 74. Margaret Thatcher destroyed this country, closed the coal mines, closed the steelworks, shut down industrial Britain, desertified industrial Britain, made millions of people unemployed. And you're trying to tell me this clown is more vicious than her? Really? Uh, I, right, right, right. Will you listen? Hear me out. 130,000 people uh, killed through the DUWP, starting with IDS and the vicious crew after him. I was around during the miners. I remember it very well. My grandfather was a miner. He was killed in, a, in Fisher. He was killed in a, with a coal cutting machine for Bellarmine. My father and most of my relatives were in the RAF, were in the forces during the war. Most of them voted for Attlee after the war. This is an Attlee moment. Our country is in great danger, and I think J J Jeremy Corbyn could lead us to a new future. It's as idealistic as that. Well, that's a very powerful uh, peroration. I must congratulate you on it. Thanks very much Thank you, indeed uh, for your call. Let's hear from Simon in London. Go ahead, Simon. Hi, George. How are you doing? Good, sir. Good. That's good, that's good. Um, basically, I want to talk to you about two things. Firstly, Grenfell Tower. As you probably know, the report came out this week uh, with regards to the safety failures that occurred on, the, on, on both the building and the actual uh, operations that happened with regards to uh, trying to get people out. And I was quite shocked and surprised that the fire brigade bore the brunt of the blame for that. Uh, and the fire brigade's union came out. I'm a libertarian, I'm not a fan of the unions, but the five brigades unions came out and said this was not an accurate report. I kind of agreed with them. As a civil engineer myself, in any design, it's pretty clear that any design, whether it's permanent or temporary, has to be signed off. And in this case, um, all you had to do, it was, a, it was a simple matter of seeing who signed the design certificate off. Uh, the fact that 
they had a uh, uh, um, cladding which was not fire resistant, and that was one of the reasons why the entire building burned down. Um, and the missed the scene had missed out in the report, or not even said that this is um, uh, this is one of the prime reasons why the building failed. The root cause of the building failing is uh, it's suspect to me. Now, either there's two possibilities to this: either the safety team that, or the team that carried out this root cause analysis were totally stupid, which is possible, believe it or not, or it was a deliberate whitewash. Well, uh, that's a very powerful call, uh, Simon, and it's particularly close to home for me. I was living uh, in the lee of the Grenfell Tower at the time. My children uh, went to school uh, with many people uh, affected in the most uh, appalling way by the Grenfell Fire Inferno. Uh, my wife had a shop uh, within smelling distance of the burning uh, tower. And so I was deeply involved. I was a school governor in the Grenfell area. So I feel particularly strongly about this. And also I have a lifelong association until very recently with the Fire Brigade Union. And I, like you, uh, find it repugnant, unconscionable, intolerable uh, that the firefighters the people who plunged into the burning building, writing their names on their helmets, which is never a good sign, just in case, as might well have been expected, many of them didn't make it out of that burning building. For men and women who plunge into burning buildings for a living to try and save people's lives and property, to be lined up, as the first candidates for punishment and for insult was just about as grotesque as it could possibly be. And ineluctably, this flows from the decision of the inquiry to start at the end rather than start at the beginning. You see, all these other points you made, they will be reached. But already, and I believe deliberately, it has been fixed in the public's mind that the firefighters are somehow to blame for the catastrophe of all these dead, maimed, and permanently damaged people in the Grenfell Tower. They should have started at the cladding in fact, you can go back further. You said, signed off. I've got bad news for you. Well, not if you're a libertarian. You probably weren't a supporter of Tony Blair's government anyway. The people who changed the law so that you no longer needed the fire brigade to sign off a building was not the wicked Tories, but the new Labour government of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. It was they who gave council officials the right to sign off a building as safe, whether the firefighters, the fire brigade liked it or not. That's the beginning. Then comes the cladding, arsenic, poison, cladding our tower blocks, immensely inflammable, causing any fire potentially to become a catastrophe. Who made that cladding? Who 
bought that cladding? Who installed that cladding? Who is responsible for the fact that sprinklers were not working? Who is responsible for the fact that exit, egress in the building was so limited? All of these things have far more to do with the catastrophe than the conduct even of the chief fire officer herself. Now, no public organization is beyond criticism. There may very well be legitimate points to be made about the stay put decision made by the head of the London Fire Brigade. But those firefighters, men and women, who plunged into that burning building ought to be enshrined forever as true British heroes, not villains. And that's what this disgusting verdict of the public inquiry has done, sought to paint them as villains rather than heroes. How's the poll going? Boris Johnson, 38, Jeremy Corbyn, 37, sorry, 35, hung Parliament, 27, 1,748 votes. Uh, Boomer for Bernie says, we too have only one candidate standing up for Julian Assange, Tulsi Gabbard. Of course, she's been accused of being a Russian asset. Well, not half, and I'm on the same shortlist as her. The uh, predictable forces of darkness have released a list of Russian assets that include not just Tulsi Gabbard, but one Donald J. Trump and yours truly, George Galloway. And uh, UK elections, uh, Captain Swiss says, I'd first thought a Tory majority, but I'm questioning whether it may be hung after all, trying to call into your show. Please, I'd like to speak to Captain Swiss. Uh, he's a candidate, I think, in uh, Stoke. Uh, and uh, Blessing 1973, sorry, I can't read the Irish. It says the future of UK Labour is at stake, so a Corbyn victory is imperative. Otherwise, a decline into a Blairite cesspool is on the cards. And Tim O'Seary says, I must say Galloway's on top form here, lambasting the collar who says that this government is the most right-wing there has ever been. Yes, George, you're right. The Tories now have not done the damage Thatcher did. She closed down industry in the UK, and she did a lot worse. And Lynn says there'll be a hung parliament because Boris won't do a deal with Nigel. Now, as I said uh, earlier in my monologue, uh, the so-called war for democracy in Libya has gone just as disastrously, arguably even more disastrously, than the war for democracy in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria, and elsewhere. The Libyan theater of operations is still littered with the corpses that uh, Boris Johnson famously said, once we'd swept them up, uh, Sirt could be uh, quite a happening place. Uh, it was an off-color, you could say, a rather revolting joke at the time, uh, but it's an even bigger and badder joke now.
because the bodies are not being swept up, they are being multiplied. The alphabet soup of Islamist extremism, all with their own warlord militias, are still tearing lumps out of each other and anyone caught in the crossfire and Libya is no longer a state. One man who knows all about that is Maximilian Forte, a professor from Canada who's written a book uh, on this very subject, and I love the title, Slouching Towards Sirt, NATO's War on Libya and Africa. Uh, professor Forte, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's a real pleasure for me to join you today. And a very good line, I'm uh, glad to say. Um, tell us, first of all, paint a picture of what Libya is like as we come to the end of 2019, would you? Yes, well, there hasn't uh, been that much improvement over these last few years. I mean, at the worst point, we had, in effect, four uh, governments competing for power uh, based in different parts of uh, Libyan territory, um, among them uh, a UN-imposed, uh, basically an airdropped government uh, that was based in Tripoli uh, that has, you know, commands very little support and, and loyalty on the ground. Uh, they've been trying to engineer uh, a kind of new Libya with little success. You've seen uh, a periodic resurgence in the domestic civil war uh, that has erupted in Libya after the end of uh, NATO's intervention. Um, you have a huge portion of the population. Uh, I think the, at the last count, it was uh, certainly more than a third and close to a half of uh, the population that's internally displaced. Uh, with hundreds of thousands, you know, this is a population of six million in total, hundreds of thousands living as refugees in nearby countries. And then, of course, you have the uh, resurgence in African slavery. Um, so it has been success on all fronts. And I'm not even sure if I'm being sarcastic anymore, because uh, my uh, opinion is that it's not that the West intervened to prevent uh, chaos. It's that it intervened precisely to create it. Um, it. What it does not want is stability in countries such as Libya, stability in any country that can offer an alternative or a challenge to the kind of uh, new world order that we've been busily trying to build uh, worldwide. Well, I couldn't dispute with you that that's what it looks like. Uh, I do have some doubt uh, about whether that was the intention. I suppose that brings us back to the age-old question, are we ruled by fools or knaves, and which would be worse? Uh, the, the intention uh, of creating uh, a chaotic, uh, balkanized, broken Libya with no borders uh, surely can't have been their intention because actually nobody's making any money out of it. Ah, yes, that's been one of the, one of the other failures of their policy because 
one of the earliest desires, and this was, uh, this was expressed, by the way, in various meetings at the State Department uh, that are on record, uh, even before the United States uh, ceased its bombardment campaign, they were already organizing groups of investors, uh, of American investors, to potentially go into Libya and, you know, reap huge contracts for reconstruction. So destruction was certainly very profitable, especially for some of the interests that are, you know, very prominent in Washington that are also major donors to various political campaigns and so forth. So there, there, was, there was this kind of eye on profit but of course, you know, events escaped their control. Um, the groups that they backed began to turn on, to each, on each other. They began to turn on themselves. There was already, you know, a good amount of evidence of that infighting developing, even in the so-called insurrection against uh, Gaddafi's government. But, you know, they chose to ignore that or to overlook it. Uh, so I'm not sure. As I said, uh, it, even if the intention wasn't a conscious one to create uh, chaos, uh, certainly, you know, our notions of order, uh, and by ours I mean the notions of order that are dominant in North America and Europe, um, are precisely the ones that produce and generate and engineer this kind of chaos that we see. Very well put, uh, I must say. Uh, amongst the many indictments that you listed, uh, perhaps the most shocking one uh, is the resurgence of African slavery. And in fact, uh, this follows uh, the literal lynching of large numbers of black people uh, in the immediate aftermath of the overthrow of the Gaddafi power. Uh, explain what you meant by that to the uh, audience, would you please? Yeah, well, in fact, uh, for at least three years now, uh, if not a bit longer, we've known of the formation of actual slave markets in Libya. Now, these have been filmed. Uh, CNN itself has gone there and filmed uh, live auctions of, of human beings uh, sold for as little as, I believe, $400. Uh, then they're carted off and housed basically in prisons where they work for, obviously, for no wages. Um, and uh, what we don't know, because Libya is such an extremely dangerous place for correspondents and researchers, we don't know how many thousands have been sold into slavery, if it's something that continues on a day-to-day -day basis, if it has increased, if it has decreased. You would think that this would be a major you know, priority the world over to not only know more about slavery in Libya, but to stamp it out. It is, after all, against international law. Um, so there's a vital, vital information that we don't have. But what we do know is that during the war, and for years prior to the war, as a matter of fact, uh, Africans were badly stigmatized in Libya. And during the 2011 war, they were demonized in part by the United States government and various Western agencies, uh, including human rights organizations. They were demonized as mercenaries. Of course, there was no evidence ever found 
of any uh, mercenaries from Africa having been in Libya during the war. So that was a complete falsehood. Uh, and it was used as a justification for lynching virtually any African migrant worker that could be found. Uh, so from the beginning to the present, you see Africans in Libya being objectified. They've always been a resource. They're either a convenient excuse for war or they're cheap labor uh, or they're used by the European Union in different ways, you know, as a potential threat to shore up European identity, which, as you know, as you would know better than I, is always in danger of uh, being uh, tattered into fragments. So it's quite a complicated picture, and I suspect that this is going to continue for some time. Now, of course, amongst the European values uh, that Sarkozy and Cameron were exemplifying, uh, was the bringing of democracy uh, to people who don't have it. Uh, they succeeded in destroying Libya, destroying the political power that was there. I'm not a supporter of the Gaddafi system. I have oftentimes opined that it takes some doing to make Libya even more shambolic, a thousand times more shambolic, than it was under its previous political system. Are they ever going to emerge from that, Professor? <clears throat> this is a, very, a question that I'm very interested in, as a matter of fact. Now, on, on the question of Libya's government pre-2011, you and I may diverge on some points. Um, I happen to think that the system that was built up under Gaddafi was a very effective one, uh, not just in holding together a country that ordinarily would not have held together, uh, but also in developing a system that, as imperfect as it was, was one of the best existing systems of direct democracy that has existed, simply because very few countries have tried it. You know, apart from the only other one I can think of uh, was Grenada, from 1979 to 1983. So we don't have many examples of direct democracy. Um, what is extremely interesting is a study done by the University of Oxford in conjunction with the University of Benghazi that was published in 2012 uh, that was a survey of national, of a political attitudes, of political opinions uh, across Libya. And when you go through the statistics, I, I, I can't go through it all now, what you get as a kind of composite picture of the system Libyans want, the majority of Libyans, it's precisely the kind of system that they had from 1969 to 2011. In other words, participatory democracy, public ownership of uh, natural resources, uh, not necessarily any need for any uh, multi-party elections. They're not interested in multiple political parties. They don't see great value in, in electoral politics and competitions between parties. Uh, they want a strong uh, national leader, uh, what we would call a strong man, and, and, and on it goes. And so basically, the more that they can gravitate back towards what they had already built, the, the closer they'll get to coming out of this kind of mess that they're in now. Professor, very powerful uh, indeed. I look forward to reading your book. Uh, it's the best title of a book I've seen for some time, Slouching Towards Seert, 
NATO's War on Libya and Africa, published in 2012, I'm sure uh, still available. Thank you, Professor, for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Now, uh, people sometimes say to me, uh, don't mention the war uh, and accuse me of being uh, a trifle too uh, over-interested in the Second World War. Uh, it's par perhaps my age. I was born just nine years after the end of the uh, Second World War. In fact, the year I was born, Winston Churchill was still the Prime Minister in this country. That's how old I am, but don't tell the wife she thinks I'm 45. In the year I was born, rationing uh, was ended, uh, which is a pity, uh, because everything is rationed. Uh, it's rationed by price. Um, a ration based on your... Uh... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Your status as a citizen of the country is actually rather fairer than rationing by price, but that's an argument for another day. I'm also extremely fascinated by the personalities of Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin. So this book was right up my street. It is called Churchill and Stalin, Comrades in Arms During the Second World War. And indeed, if they hadn't been, I'd be addressing you now in German, although I'd probably already be dead. One of the authors of this tremendous new book, and I've now read about half of it, is Martin Foley. It's uh, written by Martin Foley, Jeffrey Roberts, and Oleg Rejewski. And I'm glad to say that Martin Foley is on Skype right now to talk to us about the book. Martin, thank you for that. You're a professor of history. Indeed, I think you're all professors of histories. Uh, uh, one of the three of you is Russian. You've had access to uh, tremendous treasure trove of archive uh, material, some of it not seen before. I found the book absolutely fascinating, and I'm halfway through it already. Uh, sketch for us what the general thesis of the book is, would you? Yes, so good evening, George. Evening. Um, is essentially, our thesis is that the war could only have been won by the Allies working together. Yep. They were a very ill-matched um, pairing, particularly Churchill and Stalin, of course, with their long backgrounds. But somehow they managed to work together. It wasn't smooth. It wasn't easy. Um, but they managed it, and it worked. Uh, and so the, the central theme of the book is how they managed to manage their differences, how they managed to get on. Uh, and in fact, they got on surprisingly well, at least when they met. Uh, well, one of the things you... Yeah, George? Yeah, I, uh, I read one of the greatest books I read were, was the diaries of uh, Maisky, the Soviet ambassador through, throughout the war. 
in London. But I hadn't grasped until I read your wonderful book uh, just how well particularly Churchill and Stalin got on. I mean, uh, it turns out, and again, I didn't know this, uh, that actually Stalin and Roosevelt hardly met at all, whilst Churchill met Stalin many times, and many thousands of miles were eaten up uh, to facilitate those uh, meetings. What do you think it was about the chemistry of these two leaders uh, that allowed them to gel so well, and as I say, without which the war might not have, almost certainly would not have been won. It, it's an incredibly unlikely thing to happen, isn't it? You've got the grandson of a duke and the son of a blacksmith, um, but they found they found a commonality, and I think they, the commonality was their interest in winning the war. I mean, Churchill, of course, was a man. Who, who was fascinated by war, loved fighting war, loved being a warlord. Uh, and when he met Joseph Stalin, what he saw in Joseph Stalin was a man who, like him, was at the center of a massive war effort um, and was not exactly enjoying it. But for, in many ways, for Joseph Stalin, it was the fulfillment of his life. I think it was the, the, the time when he was most um, stable and in control of things. Uh, and, and so they kind of gelled as, as comrades in arms, as, as Churchill himself described it. Um, they had their differences. And one of the things that distinguishes their relationship, I, I think, and is different than the one with Roosevelt, is that they were very frank with each other. If they disagreed, they said so. Uh, and they would argue with each other. And having argued with each other and made their points, I think they then rather respected each other, both of them. And very few people, of course, spoke to Stalin like that. He wasn't surrounded by people who felt it was safe to answer him back. Um, and I think Stalin actually rather enjoyed a real set two with Churchill. In fact, uh, uh, he was, uh, Stalin was rather sad when uh, Churchill lost the 1945 general election to be replaced by a Labour prime minister. Well, yes, he was. There was a famous moment at the Potsdam conference when Churchill was taking his leave and going back for the election result. And, and he said to Stalin, of course, I may not get back. The, the voters may not return me, though he thought they would. And uh, Stalin looked down the table at Clement Attlee and said, hmm, he doesn't look hungry for power. Uh, <laughs> Stalin didn't like Attlee. He didn't like Labour Party politicians generally anyway. Uh, I think he, he felt much more at home with Churchill. Um, it is and, a, and got on, as I say, he got on with him personally. Yeah, man. That, that, uh, you know, there are some lessons for uh, the present in that, aren't there, Martin? That, you know, you have to deal with people in international relations. Uh, and to use a Churchill phrase, jaw, jaw is better than war, war. And for me, the, the genius of Churchill was... The greatness of Churchill was that he refused to capitulate when most of the British ruling class wanted to capitulate, wanted to make a separate deal with Hitler, uh, which would have brought the Second World War to a premature end and would probably have led to a Hitlerite attack to its east uh, on the Soviet Union once uh, its uh, hegemony over Western Europe had been secured. Churchill, by his refusal to capitulate, uh, made that uh, uh, impossible. Uh, and secondly, uh, his, 
surely correct perception that uh, whatever other differences existed with the USSR and its leader, uh, together was the only way that you were going to defeat fascism, defeat Hitler. I think he was, he was very clear about that. And uh, another important moment was a year after that, when Germany invaded the Soviet Union. It was by no means certain that Britain would align with the USSR. And there were a lot of people in British politics, both on the left and the right, who were not very comfortable with an alliance with the Soviet Union. And that decision was Churchill's. He took that on his own, made a, a, a broadcast on the evening of the 22nd of June, where he aligned Britain up with the Soviet cause without really consulting anybody else. That was his decision. Uh, and I, I think it was a very, very important one because it didn't have to be that way. A lot of people were very cautious, wanted to, to bide their time and see what happened. Uh, and he made a clear commitment. And I, I, I think Stalin never really forgot that. I'm sure. And uh, that was uh, important. Of course, Churchill was by then in a very strong position. He was able uh, to uh, make that kind of uh, pronunciamento without, uh, because if he'd taken it to the cabinet, he might well have lost. So it was uh, a moment when, because, you know, it's often said, especially by Marxists, that great men don't make history and so on. But there is a role for great men at moments like that, isn't there? Yes, yes, there is. There, there are moments when a decision has to be made and, and it's not inevitable. Um, the Second World War would have gone very different if you hadn't had Churchill and Stalin in those positions. Now, uh, one of the complaints, surely uh, justifiable, at least from my point of view, that Stalin had of Churchill and FDR was the never-ending delay in launching the Second Front. Uh, there was a big campaign uh, here in Britain, Second Front now, uh, demanding uh, D-Day as early as 42, if not 43, but we didn't get it until June of 44, and perhaps we only got it then because of the dramatic victories that the Soviet Union, the Red Army, were making in the East. I haven't got to that yet in your book. How, uh, how have you covered the constant demands of the Soviet leadership for a second front? Well, it, it's, it's pretty clear, I think, that if, if Churchill had a, a fault in handling Stalin, he had a tendency to make rather rash promises. Uh, and on a number of occasions, he gave Stalin uh, the impression that Britain was going to be more active than it actually was. Um, and now I think partly Churchill was deluding himself because he really wanted to be. But he kept getting held back by, either by his advisers or by the sheer reality of the fact that he didn't have the force to put into the, the field. So it, it's very widely debated as to whether the Allies could have done a second front earlier. My feeling is that they really needed to be more honest with, the, with their Soviet allies uh, and tell them very clearly why they couldn't. And I'm afraid they, they made some very extravagant promises, and Roosevelt was just as bad at that as Churchill. Um, now, you, you, you quote in the, in the book, uh, that old uh, saw, uh, that the Soviet Union gave its blood, uh, the Americans gave their money, what was it you said that Churchill and Britain gave? 
Well, this this was a, a phrase that Stalin came up with, where he said Britain gave time. Uh, so that Britain's great contribution was staying in the war um, from 1940 onwards and basically keeping Germany at war and keeping that the threat of a second front open, that Hitler was never able to fight a war on only one front. He always had to be concerned about his rear and about the Mediterranean. Uh, and I think S Stalin, who had a very keen strategic mind, appreciated that. Obviously, he wouldn't say that in his interactions with Churchill because he wanted to go Churchill into action. But he had a, a, a pretty smart military brain and understood, I think, that by, by stretching Germany as much as possible, that was co contributing to the final outcome. Now, uh, finally, and I'm grateful for your time, Professor, the, uh, amongst the things that didn't uh, were inevitable, the Cold War, you argue, wasn't inevitable. And in fact, at the end of the war, it was the intention of the three leaders uh, that the Grand Alliance, as I think Churchill called it, uh, should continue. Why did, where did it all go wrong? This is a, a much debated question, of course. And I think our main point is some people tend to see the origins of the Cold War way in the Second World War and to blame Roosevelt, blame Churchill. Um, and our, very much from the evidence, it's quite clear that all three powers intended to carry on cooperating, including Stalin. Uh, he thought that, that the Grand Alliance worked in pragmatic terms, that they understood each other, they understood each other's interests. Um, it only really starts to go wrong after the war, at least partly, I think, and this is my personal view, it may not be shared by my other authors, is that because Britain so dramatically lost power after the war, um, the, the Grand Alliance was based on the idea of three equals, kind of balancing each other up as a triangle. Uh, and, and Britain just lost its power after the war for all sorts of reasons. Um, and it left a great gap in international politics. Uh, and it left a lot of uncertainties. You know, Britain had been a world power for 200 years. And neither the Soviet Union nor the United States really knew what to do about that. Uh, and they started pushing against each other in the areas that the British had previously dominated, like the Mediterranean and the Middle East. And neither power was really used to that kind of international politics, particularly the Americans, who were trying to, trying to um, work out how the United States should be a world power in a way the United States had never really needed to be before. So, so I think it's the post-war situation that, that causes the problems um, whether that could have been dealt with in a more sensible way uh, is, is up for debate, I think. Uh, both, both sides make mistakes, um, perhaps uh, overestimate each other's intentions. Uh, it's, it's a subject for another book in many ways. Well, uh, well uh, Godspeed that other book, because that's, uh, in a way, uh, just as important as the story you tell here, which is a truly tremendous one. I'm really, I mean no hollow flattery. It's a wonderful piece of work. Churchill and Stalin, comrades in arms during the Second World War. Available, I hope, Professor, from all good bookshops, but all the usual uh, platforms too. Uh, I, I hope all good bookshops, but certainly to uh, popular online booksellers. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. That's Professor Martin Foley, co-author with Jeffrey Roberts and Oleg Rzhevsky, uh, which is uh, a fantastic cover also.
great title and a really, really uh, great read. The poll, who will win the British general election? No change. Uh, 2,933 votes in so far. Uh, Boris Johnson, 36%. Jeremy Corbyn, 36%. Hung Parliament, 28%. That is too close for comfort. And I wonder if it's entirely uh, justified by today's opinion polls. After all, uh, the opinion polls are universally giving uh, Boris Johnson a substantial enough lead. Not that substantial in one case, 8%, uh, but very substantial in another case, in the Observer, 16%. So I wonder what it is that is making people think that actually that's not how it's going to end up. I'll be discussing it with Adam Gary, hashtag Ask Adam, the cleverest man in England, even though he may politically make an error or two or ten. <laughs> he's still my friend. He's Adam Gary. Welcome back to the show, Adam. Uh, let me, just before I turn to you, give you the final hour poll. Uh, who would you send into space? I told you earlier that on this day, Laika uh, in Sputnik 2 was launched into orbit, and very successfully. Uh, I believe the Soviet government, when it said that she lived uh, for a week and died peacefully. Wikipedia tells you something different, but that's just propaganda. So I'm asking, who would you send into space? A, Simon Cowell. B, Donald Trump, or C, your choice. You can, this is a write-in. You can write in your choice. Uh, so, so far, 29% of you say Simon Cowell should be uh, jettisoned up into space forever. 43% say Donald Trump, and 27% have opted for other. But I haven't got any of those others yet. Uh, a couple, uh, Tony Blair, he's up there. He, Tony Blair's up there. All of Parliament, all of Congress. And it'd be a big spaceship. Boris Johnson, my goodness. So put them up on the screen for me, will you? It's the first time Tony Blair hasn't run away from people shooting objects at other people. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Tony Blair's normally firing the rockets. Yes. Uh, Kelly Lane says, uh, read your show last week. Thank you, Craig Murray, uh, for keeping us informed about the Julian Assange case. The US is a bully. Why won't people wake up? And Jason Carmichael says about Chris Williamson being deselected, bitter irony that Chris is the MP I remember most supportive of a reselection. Life is funny sometimes. And socialist tipster says, George on top form on Syria, let's not forget the Tory government actively supported the dismembering of Syria. David Cameron's 70,000 moderate rebels turned out to be allies of Al-Qaeda. The one huge positive about Corbyn as Prime Minister is that that won't happen again. Chewy Chewbacca says Gagarin Way is a play by Scottish playwright Gregory Burke, named after a street in the West Fife village of Lumfinans on the edge of Cowdenbeath. Now, here's a fact, Chewy, a lamentable one, that Lumfinans 
Lumfinnans is the poorest place in Great Britain. Official. Sandra Crawford says Landsman will never be voted for again by most Momentum members if Chris is expelled or not allowed to stand. That will be the last straw. I know many Momentum members who've had enough already. Well, of course, there are no votes in Momentum because, uh, well, it's a private company owned by a certain <coughs> Mr. Landsman. Alexander Dowding says it will most likely be a hung parliament. The ratio has surely not changed all that much since 2016. The vote will be split almost 50-50 again between leavers and remainers. Now, that's the point, isn't it, Adam? That if it's a Brexit election, then if the Leave and Remain camps are divided between Labour and the Liberal Democrats, the Greens, the Welsh Nationalists and the Scottish Nationalists, and the Brexit camp is divided between the Conservatives and the Brexit Party, it's very unpredictable. Indeed, uh, the last three days have been, frankly, shocking, and for someone who's a hardline Brexiteer, quite depressing from the level of tactics and the maturity that one would expect of seasoned people. The key to this election is going to be in England and Wales. Scotland is more or less a foregone conclusion. Supermajority of SNP seats in Scotland. Northern Ireland, much as last time, will be split between DUPs, DUP MPs who will take their seats and Sinn Féin MPs who obviously never take their seats. So it's going to come down to England and Wales and England and Wales on the whole are Brexit country because it was those two nations of the four that voted overwhelmingly yeah, for I Brexit. Yeah, I mean, if there had been no Scotland, no, no North of Ireland in the 2016 referendum, the Leave majority is huge. Oh, astronomical. And lo and behold, without wanting to insult anyone from any of the four nations, uh, when you combine England and Wales's population, that's the vast majority of people in the UK. I know Ian Blackford doesn't think that that's how things work. Maybe he's been taking maths lessons from uh, Diane Abbott, which is a bit different than taking technology lessons from a pole dancer, but there's lots of poor lessons being learned all around. I have to say this, and I take... If there's, I take pain in saying it, there's no pleasure. I've fallen out of love uh, with the Brexit party. I think that a terrible decision has been made and I've, at many levels. First of all, the idea that a party that has no representation in either of the Houses of Parliament shouldn't have its leader standing in an election is a kind of vote of no confidence that I would have expected from someone as utterly crass as Emily Thornberry, but not something I would have expected from a man who would typically been a master tactician like Nigel Farage. Secondly, the absolute radical nonsense which would make William Gladstone blush about a written constitution, something that even, even Tony Blair wouldn't dare force upon the country that he helped destroy, uh, helped turn my stomach on inside out before it fell to my shoes. And thirdly, the, their uh, inability to read the feeling in the country. I've read 
the Boris Johnson Treaty. I don't particularly like it. Nigel Farage has the same position. But most people in the country won't have read that treaty. What they will know is a deeper truth, because all truth is ultimately simple. And I've all, as a Democrat, I've always trusted the people to find the truth. There are really two choices in this election for people that care about Brexit. There's Brexit a year to three years to five years from now if the Conservatives have a majority and there's no Brexit at all if the Labour have a majority or there's some sort of Remain coalition between Labour, the Liberals and possibly even the SNP. Those are the two choices. Brexit isn't going to happen in any recognisable form anytime soon, but it could happen further on because no treaty is permanent, no government is permanent. Things change and if England and Britain are to survive, that means that one must fight battles not just today but tomorrow and the day after. I think that the Brexit party have frankly borrowed the gun that Corbyn was shooting himself in the foot with over his Brexit policy and they've put a hole in their own shoes. Why do you think they did that? Looking at Farage um, for, at his press conference at the end of last week and looking at him again on the Mark programme, he had a face that I've seen many times in my life, and it's the face of a man who had had 10 years of James Bond-style winnings at a casino, and he just lost it all. The house, the car, possibly the wife as a result of that, and that was the look on his face. The energy was low, the articulation was high, because it always is with him, but he seems like a beaten man, and he's making a decision that I think is tactically poor because we live in the real world and the decision he made is one that I think isn't really compatible with the real world. Again, I would have expected Diane Abbott to think 2 plus 2 is 10 or Emily Thornbury not to know which country to invade. First, a kind of Tony Blair in a gin distillery, but I expected better from the Brexit party. Brexit supporters uh, expected better and all you need to do, look at Aaron Banks, look at Everyone, frankly, except Richard Tice, who has money and influence on the Brexit side, is incredibly disappointed. Farage's own former UKIP deputy, Godfrey Blumer, an Austrian uh, economics expert, has reached the same conclusion. It's been a dismal and depressing last couple of days. Let's take uh, a call. Uh, we've got Azad in Hemel Hempstead. Azad, welcome yes, to sir. the show. Yeah, thank you, sir. I'm a great fan, admirer, fan of yours, George, first and foremost, let me say that. Thank you, sir. But one thing where you and I may disagree is one issue. But my main thing, George, was I love history, and I've read as much as I can possibly. Now I'm getting a, a retired bit also. Sometimes I don't remember everything. But I'm always amazed that in Britain, after the uh, Second World War, when Churchill was a hero, the massive swing when the Labour Party came in with Attlee. And during that time, I read all the very papers, a lot of problems that the Labour Party had with the trade unions, endless dockers, strike, this strike, so on. And then you had the 13 years of what Harold Wilson called 13 years of misrule. Yet during that 13 years, the Tory government more or less carried on with the Labour Party policy of house, getting rid of slums, house building, public services. None of these privatisation ever entered into those type of Tory grandees. Then come Harold Wilson, and five, six years later, he was chucked out, God knows why, and then eventually he had another experience. Then come Maggie Thatcher, who decimated our 
uh, working class industries, all the type, and that's the type of era when I used to work in various places all have disappeared. I used to work as a welder, things like that. But all disappeared, and yet I was amazed during my entire connection with ordinary British people, the number of people who do ordinary jobs, yet they vote for the Tories. And well, so uh, yeah, the uh, that, that, that's, a, that's a big question. Um, we don't really have time to do it full justice, but it's a very smart question. There is a phenomena about people voting against their own interests, but I tend to be with Adam uh, that uh, the, the people can generally be trusted uh, to find the truth, and the truth is that Labour in 1945 indisputably was a party that stood up for the working class. It was working class itself. It had leaders and uh, supporters who were not working class, but it unarguably stood in the interests of working class people. Moreover, it had a program for Britain which was a hundred miles more radical than Jeremy Corbyn's program for Britain. The creation, imagine, from the desert of charitable health care for the poor and private health care for those that could afford it. The creation of a free at the point of need national health service, the nationalization of the coal industry in which hundreds of thousands of men worked and a thousand years of coal under our feet, which is still there, by the way, and the nationalization uh, of other important sinews of the British economy, the tremendous overhaul of war damage, rebuilding, the building of council houses like the one uh, that I grew up in from the age of five, my slum cleared uh, by the Labour government of 1945 and the Conservative governments which succeeded it, which is the second of my points. Attlee's victory changed the terms of trade a consensus, they called it butskillism, grew up in the country, where by and large, the 1945 to 50 transformations in Britain were more or less left alone. There was a bit of difference here, a bit of difference there, but the essential paradigm left by the Attlee government was left untouched. And that did not begin to break down until the Thatcher victory in 1979. But what then happened was that Labour became a party that was unrecognisable, not just politically, but culturally, maybe even more importantly, culturally. You could have all kinds of so-called left-wing policies but if culturally you have nothing in common with the working class, yeah, yeah. if culturally you don't look like, sound like, feel like you actually 
are of the working class, then you begin to have a problem. And that problem manifested itself most perfectly in the crushing defeat for Labour under Ed Miliband in 2015 and the crushing defeat of Gordon Brown in 2010. That's my take on it. Adam will have a different one. Adam? Not necessarily. Um, I think that one thing we've got to remember about 1945 is that one could make an argument that in spite of the intellectual Bloomsbury fringe of the Labour Party, that there was more morality, more Christianity and more ethics among the Labour MP intake in 1945 than there was in the other two main parties of the day. There were many of them in uniform. Indeed. Major Healy, uh, uh, Attlee also, I think, was a major. Uh, many of the Labour MPs elected in 1945 entered the House in their uniforms. Absolutely right. And when you combine, and that it was a sailor time for the country, I think, because especially after 1945, no one could really argue that the patriotism of one side was different than another. In the 1930s, there was opposition to war, much of it noble from both sides. When the war came, everyone, to a great extent, to, to an overwhelming extent, did their duty. Since um, the era of Jenkins, where I think it all began to go horribly wrong for the Labour Party in terms of being one of national cohesion and one that respected cultural tradition as opposed to economic tradition, because, of course, both of those things, while somewhat related, are different, because economics doesn't tend to have the important emotional component that culture mm. does in terms mm. of tradition. Starting with Roy Jenkins and then finishing off with Tony Blair, and now when we look at the Labour Party today, you have a party of people that are culturally so alien to anything remotely traditional, and I realise that the Liberals are no better, and that the Tories haven't even really put up a fight, you know, the, the sea light is on, but the Conservatism hasn't been home for quite some time, maybe that will change, uh, one can hope, uh, but... Labour have become a party of cosmopolitanism, where the country outside of London and a few other city centres has tended to cling on to its values, sometimes gripping against hope because the forces of the state in the control of the cosmopolitans have tried to hoist this culture off of people as though someone ripping the clothes off a married woman in the middle of a street. But the Labour Party is doing themselves no favours with this, and with Brexit, the penny dropped. Because when you have a binary A-B choice between province or nationhood, and when Labour is on the side of being a province, then it all started to become clear the emperor became exposed for having no clothes, but the emperor was building his postmodern empire from the era of Jenkins right through to the present day. Azad, are you still there? What's your uh, okay, final, final word? Yeah. Yeah, my final word is um, I mean, that where Labour got badly defeated was during the time of um, Michael Foote and Tony Benn. From that onward, and yet during that period where British industry was being decimated, as you rightly said, Maggie Thatcher won every election after every election. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, she, she won the uh, 1983 election on the back of the Falklands War uh, uh, um, uh, mania, I would uh, call it. Uh, but she won the 1987 election and she should not have. 
uh, Labour's leader, Neil Kinnock, was uh, no, nobody's real idea of uh, a proper prime minister, don't you think? No. Well, he, he was elected by the Labour Party. Yes, yes. So but, in a uh, sense, that was democracy. You have to respect that. He, uh, he, he, he yeah. did. He, You'll he have did to work hard than... to make me respect Neil Kinnock. <laughs> no, anyway. I, I agree with you. I agree, George. But he was better performance than than Michael Foote. I mean, Michael Foote. I disagree. No, I disagree. Uh, Michael Foote was I, truly honourable. Broken hearted. I'm broken hearted at you saying that, Azad, no, no, because I, 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 I've no, got to tell you. Don't get me wrong. I, I love Michael. Yeah. He was. I, I, I think he him. looks a lot better in retrospect than perhaps he did uh, that's at the very time. Very true. I mean, I think he probably Ma would have made a superb prime minister. Ma Mike, Michael, Michael Foote was, in terms of culture and erudition and fidelity to the ideals of the Labour Party. I speak with some, uh, I'm party pre, because when Tony Blair was expelling me from the Labour Party, yeah. Michael Foote, very old by then, yeah. came along and gave evidence in my support and begged, oh, he begged the national executive not yeah. to do this. Anyway, oh, he, Azad, yeah. thank you, a, a, a lovely call. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Let's hear from Jim in Gateshead. Go ahead, Jim. Hi, hi George. Hi, Adam. Great, John. I love you very much, George. Uh, Thank you, bro. Yeah, what, what is, well, I follow Adam on Twitter, and, he's, been, and he's, he's mentioned it tonight on the show about the written constitution and how it would be so bad for the country. Yeah. I was sort of hoping that he would maybe elaborate on that. No, that's a good point, was, yeah. I, I suspect there's a lot of people asking themselves that, Jim, thanks for that opportunity. Adam. Well, I didn't really hear the call due to well, a technical it, error. Yeah, but... well, I'll tell you what it was. Uh, Jim's asking, and I suspect a lot of people are, why are you so against a written constitution? Oh, right. What are the, what are the main arguments against it? First of all, there's the argument of what the current constitution is, which is a living, breathing constitution, which is largely written, although not uh, codified in a single corpus of text. But in addition to that, the unwritten elements are the institutions of state. What makes the institutions of state that Corbyn mocks and that Burko, from a totally different political perspective, mocks, it's not about the, the pointy shoes or about tights or anything like that. What it fundamentally comes down to is that when an institution is alive, when an institution shapes constitution through its own actions and by respecting precedent as is defined in the very judicial structure of the common law, which is paralleled by the legislative structure, it gives meaning to these institutions. In a more pragmatic sense, though, there's the issue of written constitutions holding countries back or otherwise being ignored. Let's take the US Constitution, which certainly has some very good things in it, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, etc., many good things. The problem, though, is twofold. In America, most callers here, especially on this show, love the NHS. I love the NHS. Some people don't think I do, but I actually do more intimately than many might presume. You couldn't have an NHS in America because it would be unconstitutional. But in Britain, you could have one because the Constitution is flexible. 
Even more importantly, perhaps, when you've got a written constitution, it's counterintuitively easy to ignore because you've got legislators in countries like America who, for at least since 1913, when the Federal Reserve was established, but even before, have just been, they've been doing everything but defecating on the constitution. But because it's a, a document that's behind a piece of glass in a museum, you could say, we're not abandoning the constitution. Look, we haven't set flame to it. We haven't had a revolution. The Constitution's there, but they're not actually obeying it. When one has an unwritten Constitution, it means the rules are constantly being scrutinized, and there's actually more of an attuned effort that's made into making sure that the Constitution is obeyed rather than disobeyed, because oh, in a country like America, oh, we can disobey the Constitution today, and then it will go through a highly politicized court system, and by the time a judge has made a ruling, we'll, we'll have already slipped out from under the atrocious mistake we've made. Well, look, uh, Jim, uh, let me add to uh, what Adam said. You could say that the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act was a kind of written Constitution. Oh, yes. Oh, and yes. look at the mess that has produced. A country with a parliament that can neither go forward nor back, can neither move this way nor that, could actually have continued all the way to 2022 because it was written down that you had to have a five-year parliament. It's much better, is it not, for a flexible, living, organic, Yes. relationship to exist, whereby, like the camel, uh, it's difficult to define, but easy to recognize. It's been easy to recognize for many months now that Britain needed a general election, but we almost didn't get one because of the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. Last word to you, Jim. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I was just thinking about it. What Adam had said there, about, because obviously if we wrote a constitution today, it would be different to what the Americans wrote when they wrote it. And for instance, saying it's like we couldn't have an NHS, surely we could enshrine the NHS in it and enshrine our liberties in it. And, you know, as I, you know, I don't, as I said, maybe, because Adam had said, the only people that are going to benefit from it are communists, and maybe my leanings are too communist. <laughs> I don't know. Well, uh, there may be some others uh, of your ilk uh, listening and watching the show, Jim. Don't be apologetic uh, about that. Uh, thanks for the call. It's obviously a big yes. subject that we're going to have to return to again. Uh, I asked who would you send into space. 29% say Simon Cowell. 44% say Donald Trump. 27% have a different choice. And they include Jeremy Corbyn, 21 votes to send him into space. Tony Blair, 17 votes. George Galloway, <laughs> eight votes to send me into space. Thanks for listening and watching, uh, though. Uh, Boris, Netanyahu, Modi, Dominic Grieve, Donald Tusk, Sadiq Khan, Joe Swinson, she got 12 votes. Gina Miller, Hillary Clinton, Piers Morgan, and Alastair Campbell. And Paul Booker wants to send Adam Gary into space. Well, let's uh, see if there are uh, any more callers uh, on the line. If there are not, let me give you 
some uh, comments. People are listening tonight from Zimbabwe, Norway, Nigeria, France, Saudi Arabia, Croatia, New Zealand, and Germany, amongst many others. George McEwen says, do you still believe in a free Ireland, but not a free Scotland? Well, George, that's a particularly bovine observation. It's bovine for this reason. Ireland is not free, but Scotland already is free. Scotland could have voted for independence from the rest of Britain at any time from 1929, the achievement of full adult universal suffrage. But it did not do so. It freely decided not to do so. Moreover, though maybe you're too young to remember it, George, in 2014, we had a referendum where the question was binary, A or B. Do you want to leave the United Kingdom or remain in it? Do you want Scotland to be an independent country? Vote yes. Do you want to remain in the United Kingdom? That was the question. What was the answer, George? It was 55 to 45 not to become an independent Scotland. That's freedom, George. That's called self-determination. You freely decided. We freely decided. It was a right that we had that has never been given to the people of the occupied six counties of the north of Ireland. They were torn from their motherland by force and by the threat of terror and force. They have never been allowed since a hundred years nearly, when they overwhelmingly voted to be independent and united, they have never been allowed the freedom that Scotland has had every general election since 1929. So I spit upon your question. I consider it vile for you to compare a free country like Scotland that freely decides to remain with England and Wales in Britain with Ireland that is held in bondage and has been for a century. For you to make that comparison, I spit upon it. I regard it as an obscenity. Anne Barnes says, what do you think if Nigel teamed up with Boris? That's just not going to happen, though, Adam, is it? No, um, for multiple reasons. There was always going to be the danger of the Dominic Cummings, Nigel Farage personal rivalry, but it seems as though a good number of people close to Downing Street more or less overruled Cummings in his hatred of Farage and that they were interested in talking to him, but they were cautious. They let Farage make the first move in the chess game, and he made a poor move. He could have given them a bargain that could have been as follows. We'll only stand a defined number of candidates in places where the Tories have never won, but where Leave won in 2016 and where the, the Labour incumbent is a Euro fanatic. And in exchange for that, 
something like proportional representation could have been on the table. Uh, something like a cabinet post uh, at the Board of Trade could have been uh, in it for the Brexit party, who could have played a very important role in negotiating the potentially three years long transition period uh, with the European Union. But instead, Farage essentially said, give up your baby and, uh, and we'll do a deal with you. It that was, was an absurd demand, really. It, it I was, mean, uh, <coughs> as he spoke it, he must have known it, and everyone who heard it upon hearing it must have known it, that to demand that Johnson now scrap the deal uh, that he achieved with the EU and which has now gone through Parliament and which has united his party, at least, in a general election which has already begun, to, to demand that Johnson rip it up was guaranteed, it was designed, perhaps, to be refused. And it just doesn't... It makes as much sense as Labour saying oh, to, to Thatcher, give the Falklands to Argentina and we won't stand against you in the north of England. I mean, OK, obviously that's a bit more absurd, but only a little bit. <laughs> Mikhail says, I love how the brainwashed Americans get triggered by <laughs> Russia. Every time you say Russia, they get ready to explode. <laughs> I was on the shortlist. Did you know that? I'm, I I'm, saw that, yes. I'm on a very short list of Russian assets. I'm just waiting for President Putin to uh, get the uh, sword out and, you, uh, and knight me. Quadwo <laughs> uh, Akosa says, Thatcher is dead. Focus your angst on the living. Well, we're all still living with the legacy of Mrs. Thatcher, I'm sorry. Uh, Helen Kerr says, being working class, our family always voted Labour. Thankfully, I vote SNP now. I can't stand the rest of them. Joshua Buckle says, both parties are horrible and don't know what they're doing anyway. I may vote Liberal Democrat, my goodness. <laughs> and Alice Hunter says, that Boris's deal is 95% May's deal, yep. which was voted down three times. And Planetary Citizen says, I think Katie Hopkins should be sent into space. And Carol says, my ex-husband should be sent <laughs> into That's space. the tweet of the night, I that think. That is the tweet of the uh, night. Now, how is it going? Trump's still ahead, 45%. Carol, 29%. I don't know why people hate Carol so much. Uh, your choice, 26%. Corbyn, 20%. Hey, there's still a significant number of people who want to send me into space. But then... I wouldn't be able to present this show that you're watching and listening But you to. could have a street named after you in five... Exactly. George Galloway Way. Or just George Galloway. Quite like uh, that. Tom is in San Francisco. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Tom. Hey, gentlemen. How are you? Very well, thanks. Better for hearing from you. Thanks for taking the call. Hey, um, I'm thinking... I have a thought, and I'd like to run it past you. I'd like to get your opinion. Yeah. If... Mr. Corbyn does not get sent to space and he actually succeeds in the upcoming election. Mm. Do you think that improves the chances for a turnaround in what we uh, sadly seen occur in uh, the so-called court hosting Julian Assange? Um, I, I, I think that is something that is maybe the only uh, possible political discourse that may uh, positively affect him right now. Adam. Well... As a supporter of Julian Assange, I take no pleasure in saying this, uh, but if, if Corbyn can't even control who gets to stay in the Labour Party, I don't think he'll be able to control who the American government puts in or out of prison. So, 
I, I, I don't think that the outcome of this election is going to affect Assange one way or the other. I think that there are a lot of idealists who still think that there's some sort of valour to be found uh, when it comes to Assange, and there is some, uh, the only, one of the only journalists that I respect, Peter Hitchens, said that while he doesn't like a lot about Assange, he thinks his treatment is appalling. And even a decade ago, before Blair's vandalism of the Constitution, there would have been a lot of jurists in high places willing to say something almost identical to what Peter Hitchens said. But I think at this point, um, Assange's future, his destiny, is in American hands, and I, I don't see a happy ending. I pray I'm wrong, but that's where the, we are. Uh, only one member of parliament has campaigned for Julian Assange, and that's the one member of parliament that uh, Jeremy Corbyn's NEC uh, is poised to axe no. on Wednesday. So uh, the, the thesis uh, that you advanced, Tom, uh, doesn't have much going for it, uh, Corbyn once spoke out uh, for Julian Assange. Uh, he then quickly retreated and said that he should be um, he should be deported, extradited to Sweden, uh, not the United States. But he has never returned to the issue since. And that is for, I'm afraid, one of the saddest of reasons. He is beholden to a group of parliamentarians, particularly women parliamentarians, particularly liberal parliamentarians, with a small L, inside the Labour Party, that simply won't allow him to uh, give the kind of support to Assange that I'm sure in his heart he would like to do. Uh, he had to backtrack on the one occasion that he did speak about it because of pressure from feminists, men and women, inside the Labour Party that just could not allow the Labour Party to demand justice uh, for Assange. But I'll tell you what, Adam, surprises me even more, because I know the Labour Party so well, I'm not surprised. Mm -hmm. Not a single Conservative, not one, has spoken up for Julian Assange. Now, when I was in Parliament, there were always dozens, maybe scores, of libertarian people in the Conservative Party in Parliament. I can think of them now who would have been up on their feet pointing out the monstrosity. Alan Clark, maybe. Alan Clark, for sure, is one of yeah. them. Left-wing, right-wing Conservatives, but people who would have refused to be silent in the face of such an injustice as this. I blame David Cameron because he did to his party what Blair did to his. He created a kind of brain drain. Uh, he created this kind of cookie-cutter, uh, Barbie doll, Ken doll version of what a member of parliament should be. And I think that it's absolutely disgraceful because one of the things that made the institution of parliament so important was that it was a free institution. One of the amendments to the constitution, pardon me, to the Bill of Rights of this country that David Cameron once infamously said didn't exist because he wanted to create one.
God help us. Thank God that he didn't get that. Uh, it says that Parliament is a place where free speech is guaranteed. And yet by essentially shortlisting the mediocre and bamboozling and kicking out those who have a strong mind and a strong presence, you've now got political parties that really are just echo chambers of themselves rather than places where voices can be heard. Last word to you, Tom. Well, it's, it's, it's given me some clarity. It's, it's, uh, it's not great news, but it's what we've yeah. got these Sorry. It's a room of the court over there. Sorry, boys. Sorry we can't cheer you up. Uh, we'd love to. Thanks, Tom, for that. OK, the polls have now closed. Uh, who will win the British general election? 36% say Boris Johnson, 36% say Jeremy Corbyn, and 28% say a hung parliament. And there were 3,096 votes cast. 1,465 votes were cast as to who we should send into space. And I'm afraid it's Donald Trump that is on the spaceship headed uh, for... Uh, um, as, as, as Donald would put it earlier in the week, I don't think Melania would be crying her eyes out as she saw uh, Donald uh, soar into uh, space. Uh, what else uh, can I say before reading more uh, material? I want to remind you that I'm speaking on Friday at 7 o'clock at the Working Men's Association Club uh, in West Brom at 7 o'clock. That's in West Brom City Centre. If you're anywhere in the West Midlands, uh, I think that's the place to be. It's going to be a terrific gathering. And it's me on Brexit, Britain and the general election. And I'm on the 18th of January, Adam and me will be in Scotland in East Kilbride at the East Kilbride Village Theatre. Uh, tickets are, by the way, more than a quarter sold and there's 11 weeks to go. Uh, so that looks like it's going to be standing room only. Uh, so that's the 18th of January. Uh, Phil Zatt says, after today's poll, uh, who do you predict will win the general election? We'll come to that in a minute. And my second question, Libya is chaotic. Uh, I know she's asked that one already. Libya chaotic, Iraq unstable, Syria and Afghanistan burning. What's common between all these countries? And uh, Marie McFarlane says, Adam, will you please give us an update on President Duterte and what he came away from, what he came away with from the ASEAN summit? It is missing, it seems, from the mainstream media. Deal with that one first. Yeah. Well, it was a successful summit um, and ASEAN is always the organisation that I think Europe could have been if it wasn't uh, so inclined towards despotism. Um, overall, it's been a very good summit. It, it, was it was hosted by Thailand, one of the founding members of the organisation. And for the Philippines, it's really a matter of trying to do more trade and trying to get more foreign direct investment, both from within ASEAN, but more importantly, FDI coming into ASEAN and, and putting the Philippines on the map in that sense. The Philippines, interestingly, and this is one of the banes of Duterte's administration because he has two hands and one foot tied behind his back by what is quite possibly the worst written constitution anywhere in the world today. It was one that was designed to replace one that left much uh, to be desired, but it ended up making things worse. And so he is restricted from doing what he wants 
wants to do in terms of democratizing the economy, helping to diversify wealth outside of the capital, which is unaffectionately called Imperial Manila, and into the provinces, including uh, Mindanao, where he comes from, the first modern Filipino leader from Mindanao. And so there's only so much Duterte can do in foreign affairs, though he's done a hell of a lot. He's probably been the most globally influential Filipino leader since Marcos and a much more neutral one in terms of his relationships. Strengthening ties with all of ASEAN, uh, saying to Malaysia that's long, for a long time had a territorial dispute over Sabah uh, with the Philippines, let's do trade and put the dispute to one side, saying the same with China. Let's put uh, these uh, uninhabited islands in the South China Sea to one side, let's do trade. He's uh, improved relations with India, with Russia, with Turkey, uh, with multiple countries in the Middle East. And he's all done it while telling the European Union to go to places where Nigel Farage and Happier Days once told them to go. So it shows you, though, when you have a great leader but a horrible constitution, that you can only get so far. Mike is in Stoke. He's got a question for Adam. Mike, go ahead. <coughs> Mike, you're on the air. Mike, I can hear you coughing. Oh, that's not me. Who's this? Uh, on the, who, who's on the line? Mike. Mike, you've got the yeah. floor. What would right. you like to ask? Okay. In recent years, we've never been able to, um, to have a vote on whether we approved of the war in Libya, in Iraq. We've never had a, it hasn't been at the right time. But now, uh, Johnson has been cozying up to Trump. I didn't like the way he was closing up to him the other, the other couple of months ago. Um, if we elect Johnson, uh, is he and Trump going to be riding around like um, the Sundance kid, you know? Um, what I'm saying is we've got, now got a chance to vote perhaps for somebody who's more anti-war, but at the same time, I'm a Brexiteer. So what do I do? Aha! That's the $64,000 question, Adam. It is. Who, well, sh who should Mike vote for in your view? Well, before making that decision, and I couldn't presume to make it for anyone, one has to look at um, uh, the facts on the ground. I love the way Mike phrased the question, because just think if Boris Johnson was cozing up to a President Barack Obama, now that would be something to worry about. With Hillary Clinton as his uh, as Secretary of State. The woman, the butcher of Benghazi herself, yes. I think that the chances of the world going to war under a Trump presidency are vastly reduced compared to if Hillary had won or if Biden were, were to possibly win or any of the other possible competitors. And Johnson, too, weirdly enough, he doesn't really like war. When he was foreign secretary, and he clearly wasn't enjoying himself because May put him on a short lead. My, how the tables have turned, and aren't I, for one, really happy about that? May was awful, but I quite like Boris in many ways. Um, Boris doesn't seem to be one for war. His Telegraph columns going back years show that... Actually, his foreign policy in the Telegraph was much better than his foreign policy when he was in the Foreign Office. <laughs> Brilliantly put. Uh, that's absolutely right. And so Boris and Trump aren't all too different. I think it comes down to they're both bon vivants. They both love life. And weirdly, because of that, for them, politics is about fun. Uh, 
Uh, where for someone like Blair, I honestly think Blair was, was mentally... Messianic. Yes, there was something frightening about Blair. And then there's people like May who just do what, uh, what she's told by the so-called deep state. But Trump and Johnson, I'm cons I, I can't say that there won't be a war, but it's highly unlikely that the kind of disasters that we've seen will transpire under that partnership. Highly likely that there won't be, as uh, Theresa May might put it. Yes. Uh, sorry, Mike, you'll need to clear that out of the way. Make way, order, order, clear the lobbies. There's a legend on the line. And it was her that was coughing. She's not called Fagash Flo for nothing. <laughs> it's the legend that is Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, you're right, George. <laughs> um, it's a red poppy. Yes. Now, today, at the beginning of the Everton Tottenham football match, poppies were, wreaths were laid by some forces, and the crowd felt silent. Now, maybe next Saturday's game should have been more appropriate. All I want to do is watch the football. On the 11th of November, and Remembrance Sunday at the Cenotaph, to my mind, is really the proper place. And all this whirring of poppies on TV for two weeks before, I noticed that Adam Scott went on. Mm. Um, it makes me a little bit cross. Well, I don't know. I found the last post uh, that was played today, the one that was played yesterday, was a washout with uh, very heavy rain. But the one that was played today I found quite moving. And I switched I, the sound off. I didn't uh, hear I, it. I have absolutely no problem at all with people wearing poppies. Uh, there have been times when I have worn them myself, and I, I find the Remembrance Sunday extremely moving. Uh, I've stopped wearing uh, poppies, as you can see, uh, for uh, the following reasons. The poppy and remembrance message has, I think, been hijacked by politicians who are forever cooking up new and more terrible wars to embroil us in. As they stand there at the cenotaph, they're poppies ever larger, worn ever earlier uh, in the calendar, waxen-faced with grief for the fallen who've fallen already, they are, I know, from personal knowledge, cooking up between their ears new wars that they can send new men to fall in. And I can't be a party uh, to that. Uh, I give to the Royal British Legion in Lou even though I have criticisms of the way the Royal British Legion spends its money, I give to Care After Combat, run by my friend Jim Davidson, uh, in lieu, you might say, of buying and wearing a poppy per se. Adam. Well, even though... At a, at a fundamental level, Norma and I are on a different side of things. I actually not only understand, but I empathise with where she's coming from. I think we've, we've gotten to a, a stage in society where traditional values have been so debased and war has become a plaything for mediocre politicians rather than a proper decision entered into with the weight of, con of, of conscience that people are now clinging on to the poppy more than ever because other things are slipping away. And I share your disgust when looking at this, the 
Cheshire Cat face of Tony Blair with a poppy uh, on his lapel. And my conscience is obviously clean because I would never support a war that I wouldn't be willing to fight in myself if physically able, which kind of explains why I haven't supported any war that I can think of just about uh, in my lifetime. Uh, but... I think the, the, we've got to remember that the symbol isn't about the people who are wearing it. The symbol is about the people who have fallen. When I wear the poppy, I wear it for the men in the trenches. I don't wear it for an odious man like Tony Blair. Last word to you, Norma. Well, I agree with that. But, you see, on my Facebook, my symbol is a red poppy, which was... I mean, it was terrible, all the blood that was... You know, people died, killed, whatever. But in the middle of my red poppy is a CND badge, and it doesn't take much to work that out. That's well, we can all uh, creatively, uh, as I did, and uh, you have just uh, outlined there, we can creatively find our ways to honour uh, the fallen. And the best way to honour the fallen is to strive for a country which does not willy-nilly send more and more young men over and over again into senseless, pointless unjustified and illegal war. It's been marvellous for me. Hope it was for you.